You see, Chris, their, their greatest, your greatest fear has come true. They, they actually like that song, you know, and Chris is doing it begrudgingly. He's like, this is below me. I don't do children's worship, and, and so they like it, you know. But don't worry, he has two little ones. I have a little light. I'm going to let it shine. Uh, it's kind of a lame little light. It, it's not very bright. Although, if you look at it just like this, it's really quite bright. These are the ones with the uh, Advent wreath. And by the way, that song, the reason why we did it is because it's part of the Advent guide tonight. That's the song that's in the Advent guide. But I have that little light, and, um, but it's kind of lame. So I got a flashlight. This is pretty good. Yeah, sorry. You don't want to look straight into it. It's kind of bright. And, and that's kind of a, that's a little light, you know. The thing is about light is it's so clarifying, it's so penetrating, it's so piercing. It chases away the darkness. And in a biblical sense, light is always used to say, let us discover sin and do away with it. And the light of the world is coming at Christmas, and it's going to find out who's naughty and who's nice. (laughs) Oh, yes, I have a light And we're going to find out who's naughty. (laughs) Hit it, Ben. And who's nice. Don't look at the light. You're looking at the light. Why are you looking at the light? You're not supposed to be looking. We're looking for sinners in this room. And we're going to find... There he is. Oh, there's another one. Oh, way to go, Steve. Just raise your hand. Yeah. Okay, now that you, you know, have your lawsuit ready. Okay, um, we're talking about this Christmas, Watch for the Light. And it is true, biblically speaking, the whole idea is that darkness cannot stand light. Light cannot exist with darkness. The light of the world is coming and we're supposed to prepare for it. And what better way to prepare for the light of the world than to actually walk in light. And by walk in the light, the scriptures would mean be moral. Be good. Be righteous. Be good. Be moral. Show mercy and grace for others. Go out of your way. Live right. Do the basics extremely well. No lying. No cheating. No slander. No gossip. No backbiting. No arguing. No complaining. No whining. Just the basics that for some reason seem really hard to do. Be children of light. And here's where we get this idea. It comes from the author of 1 John, who speaks in his first letter to the church when he teaches this. This is really straightforward. This is the message, John says, this is the message we have heard from him, speaking about Jesus. This is the message we've heard from him and proclaimed to you, John says, that God is light. And in him, there is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him, with God, while we are walking in darkness, we lie. And we do not do what is true. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. I mean, the logic here is pretty straightforward, isn't it? John's always a real straightforward author in the Bible. The logic here says, look, God is light. Okay? Fact. There is no darkness or evil in God. God doesn't cause evil. He's not the author of it. 
So it follows that if we say we're Christians, John says, then we have to be good. We must journey in the light, toward the light, be of the light. Be first class, good moral examples if you're called a child of light. Now, if we claim to be Christian, John says, but we think and we plot evil and we desire it, then we are not in the light. Duh. If we act selfishly and we lie and cheat and compromise and exaggerate reality and say we had five donuts when we only had four, we're not in the light. This is what John teaches. What we're after is living a spotlight-friendly life. A morally desirable life. So that when those outside the faith, as well as inside the faith, say, that person there, I don't know if I believe everything they believe, but I'll tell you one thing. They're, they're a good person. I'll do business with them. I'll have them teach my kid. I like for them to be my neighbor. They're good folk. Then, near the end on this passage, John connects his teaching to something that we don't often think about. Walking in the light actually connects us with one another in the church. It is our connection. Morality is necessary for the church to actually be the church in John's teaching here. To be moral is to be the church. And then the entire fellowship is cleansed from sin since it is covered in the redeeming blood of Jesus on the cross. So this is pretty heavy stuff at this point. What actually binds us together in our morality and in our goodness makes us the church. And therefore, I wouldn't really say it's causative, but it realizes the fact that we are redeemed. I mean, the blood of Jesus becomes reality when we are bound together because we're being good. Interesting, huh? John is then hearkening back to an Old Testament idea of community. And you'd have to go back to Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, and some of those other kind of yawner books to actually find out what community is defined as. And what John is hearkening back, since he's a good Jew, and his audience back then would have known exactly what he's talking about, he would have said this. In order to have a good society, a good community, in order for society to function, you must understand that there is no such thing as individual sin. When one person sins, it is all of our sin. There is no such thing as private individualism in the Old Testament. And I know it's really hard for us Americans who are, you know, very proud of the fact that we have our Bill of Rights and we are all radical individuals. Yes? But in ancient societies, that's not true. The community is more important than the single person. And so when one person sins in the Old Testament, it's always the entire community sin, and they all must either redeem it and make uh, atonement for it, you know, or beseech God on it, or they'll pay altogether the consequences of it. This is what John has in mind. Now, we can understand this in our society because the society becomes corrupt, yes, when some people begin to become more greedy or whatever than other folk. And we all understand how this works, right? What really happens when a society begins to break down and becomes corrupt and unhealthy is that it isn't the fact that, that, the, that the core is missing, like, you know, those in power and have all the privilege. What really happens is, is the people on the margin, the, those that are weak and those that are living in desperation, they're the ones who begin to suffer the most. 
So when we have unemployment, you know, like it's 7% right now. It's like, well, I'm employed. I'm fine. Yeah, but if you didn't have a job, you know, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Right? So adding 230,000 jobs, which I think we did in the last quarter, that was a big deal if you're one of those 230,000. Yes? We understand this when we talk about our own neighbors down near Prospect Avenue and Linwood Boulevard, where we're involved in helping the inner city. You understand it. You go down there and say, this place is broken. As, as one individual told me down there a few years ago, he said, this place is so poor and so messed up and so broken that the criminals have moved out. There's no, one's to do, there's no one to do crime to. That's how bad it is, which is kind of weird. What happens then when a community breaks down is that it becomes, uh, becomes poor and transportation breaks down, food breaks down, groceries break down, uh, schools break down, security breaks down, law enforcement breaks down, fun breaks down, the whole thing breaks down, and it becomes chaotic. And in poverty, people become desperate, and in desperation, they turn to crime. Because normal rules, how you and I think, no longer apply. It's everyone for themselves. If you find it and it's not nailed down, and maybe sometimes even if it is, you take it. That's what happens when a culture begins to break down. And it begins with a lack of morality by those who actually have the privilege to be moral and have the good life. But it is my thought that says, when we who are the Christian well-off act like children of light... This is what gives a society its necessary horsepower in order to function well. Society is dependent upon well-intended, well-behaved, obedient, disciplined Christians being moral. Yes, education, law enforcement, uh, public policy, you know, money, all of that is good. Science and technology are wonderful and absolutely necessary. But what, but what government officials cannot do is they cannot tell good Christians and church people to be moral and act like children of light. That's what we do here. And I believe that is what makes a society function. People acting morally. It's been tried before without Christianity to be moral. And it works sometimes and to a certain extent, but not as well as if it is within Christianity. Therefore, brothers and sisters in Christ, we have work to do in this world. We have work to do. Not only just privately that we would walk in the light and work on our own moralism, but we also then need to exhibit it to others and demonstrate it and make it so. Walk in the light. Our Lord Jesus told us during his ministry, he said, You are the light of the world. You are the light of the world. What an incredible statement. You are the light of the world. The world is, is not lit until you are there. A city built on a hill cannot be hid. No one, after lighting the lamp, puts it under the bushel basket, but on the lampstand where it gives light in the whole house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. I mean, this illustration is simple enough from Jesus, isn't it? Who would ever light a, a lamp or a candle or something like that and then put it underneath a basket? First off, I think it's going to catch on fire. But other than that, who would ever do it? This little light of mine. I'm going to let it shine. I'm going to let it shine. 
Why? Because it brings glory to God. Because we are the moon and God is the sun. And we don't have a light of our own. We just reflect God's glory out into the world. Because it brings goodness to our neighbors. It benefits them. It makes society function well. And because if we do not let our light shine in the darkness, we've broken fellowship with each other in the church. And if you read John, the atoning blood of Christ is not applicable anymore. It breaks down. That's a serious charge, isn't it? The problem is, is when we begin to live in the darkness, darkness causes fear. And when a society begins to fear, the whole game is up. And I need point no further than all of us in our generation who understand 9-11 so many years ago when you had the most powerful, affluent, privileged nation ever in the history of humanity living in fear. How strange. Perhaps, perhaps, in hindsight, we should have turned more and more to the light of God. Perhaps. Easy to say now, huh? Now, there is one huge caution when we begin to preach about morality and that you should be good and you should not lie, cheat, and steal, and stuff like that. There is one thing we have to mention, mention this big caution that we, if we're going to demand to be good for goodness sake. And that is what we would call the Santa Claus. By Santa Claus, we mean Claus with an E on the end. And I'm not talking about the Tim Allen movie. I'm talking about something else. The Santa Claus says this. Okay. I'll give you gifts if you're good enough. If you've earned it the old-fashioned way by being good. Then you receive because you've been good enough. This has nothing to do with Christianity. <laughs> I'll give you gifts if you're good enough. The Santa Claus says that God has a list and he is checking it twice. You know, because what happens is, is people take the Santa Claus, the real Santa Claus, and they just assume it's actually God for some reason. And God has this list and he's checking it twice and he's going to find out who is naughty or nice. And not only that, he's watching you while you sleep. And while you're awake with his waking eye, don't you cry and don't you pout. Because he's going to see if you're sitting on a throne of lies. <laughs> you see how bad of an image this is of God? This is a disastrous transfer of the Santa Claus upon God Almighty. And it's a huge caution we have to think about. And you think like, well, you know, I mean, if you're a parent, and please don't do this. That you would make Santa Claus out to be this dude who is chasing your kids around so they'll behave during Christmas time just because you can't get dinner on the table. You know, so you yell. I'm like, well, you better behave because otherwise Santa Claus is not going to bring you nothing. You know, like, are you kidding me? Like, it's fun to play, but don't get serious about the whole thing. I mean, we all know Santa Claus gives you something in the end anyway, unless you're really, really... That's a disastrous parent. But, um, you know, but why, you understand, this simple little idea of Santa Claus gets transferred and put upon God Almighty. Because for some reason, they're both kind of religious characters. And people, because I know, 30 years of ministry, I've grown up with, with educated, smart adults who still have a Santa Claus God. 
years ago, a couple left the church. Wonderful people. Very nice people. I loved them to death. They just said, look, we, we just don't agree that God is a gracious, loving God who doesn't require anything out of us. And we're, that you got you to gotta earn your way to heaven. I said, yeah, I, I don't agree with that. Salvation is a free gift. I said, yeah, it's free, but you have to earn it. I said, yeah, we disagree. I hate to see him go. They had a Santa God. I couldn't convince him otherwise. The Santa Claus is not Christian. God is not hot or cold towards you and I. He does not base his love for us on our performance. God is a perfect parent. And if you don't have a perfect parent, then you'll just have to imagine this. Imagine a perfect parent. Because a perfect parent is a holy parent who, who God loves us no matter how we behave. It's not based upon your performance. And this is the huge caution when we speak about moralism. We are moral and good in response to God's love, not to cause God's love. Yes? We are good in response to God's love. Not, we are not good and causative of God's love. Now, this past week, my daughter brought home her um, report card, her grade card. And she's like one of those crazy smart kids, you know, that I saw when I was going to school. You know, I was around those kids. I saw them, you know. And, um, and she gets, like, all A's and everything, and she doesn't really have to work at it that hard, which is, you know, I'm just glad I'm not in school anymore like that. And, and it's just, um, I don't know if you're a parent and you have to deal with this too, but it's a fine line to walk between how much you praise them, because if you just go berserk and say, you're the most awesome kid in the whole world, these are the greatest A's, and you're just the smartest kid in the whole world, what happens on the back end is they begin to say, like, Dad really likes me because I get good grades. Yeah, I do, but that's not all, you know? And she's oldest child and stuff, so she has a bunch of performance stuff going on anyway, which she'll have to go to therapy about someday because I caused it. But um, nonetheless, <laughs> you know, um, you know, all you oldest kids in the room, you know what I'm talking about. Um, so, you know, that night before going to bed, I just said to her, I said, you know, Mia, I, I love you. I would love you even if you got bad grades. I'll, I'll always love you no matter what, no matter what you ever do, good or bad or indifferent. I'm not sure she bought it or not, but I'm trying, yeah? Sometimes I think parenting can be summed up in one goal, to raise up children in a safe home who feel unconditional love. It's simple. To raise up children in a safe home who feel unconditional love. No performance. Just, just unconditional love. But it is amazing how easily we fall into a naughty and nice parenting style. So quick. And that's the huge caution we have to remember when we begin to talk about walk in the light and be moral. Recently, I was at a workshop on how to be a parent of an athlete, which I never really thought much about, you know. But it was a wonderful workshop, and the speaker was, it was a room full of parents, and, and this guy was giving great tips on how not to be one of those crazy, wide-eyed postal parents, you know, on the side of a soccer game, you know, you know, screaming, you got to do better, you know, what's wrong with you, you know, this kind of stuff, and you're kind of embarrassed, uh, unless you're one of those people in the room, and then you're like, what? Um, <laughs> and he said this, he said, you know, when you're driving home, 
after the game, and your kid's sitting there in the front seat eating their Taco Bell, and, and they're not saying a word because they're wiped out from playing basketball or swimming or football or something like that. And, but you, who did not compete, are still living the game, right? And you're all excited, like, did you, did you see that ref's call, you know? Like, <clears throat> does the coach tell you about what you ought to be doing? Then you start coaching, you start refing. And, um, and then you're like, man, that was awesome there, but you could have done this. And you're doing this whole thing, your kid's not saying a word. <clears throat> you become your own little ESPN sports center, you know? <clears throat> and he said, rather than doing that, because your kid doesn't want to hear that, rather than doing that, and then he said this, this wonderful phrase. He said, just say this, unconditional love. He said, I love to watch you play football. I love to watch you run. I love to watch you swim. I love to watch you shoot. I just love to watch you play. And it's God Almighty with his unconditional love who says to you and me, Justin, I just love to watch you create. Zach, I just love to watch you play with your baby son. And Shelly, I just love to watch you read to your children. And Jim, I just love to watch you hold your grandson. And Mike, I just love to watch you laugh. And Mia, I just love to watch you sleep. Avoid the Santa Claus. <laughs> and instead, embrace a grace and a mercy as the basis of our morality and our goodness. Unconditional regard. Unconditional love. I just want to point out one virtue that you're going to be faced with and you already are faced with during the Christmas holiday, during the season of Advent. And that is the virtue of hospitality. Lakeland's big on hospitality. And when I say the word hospitality, I know what comes to mind, some sort of Martha Stewart placemat or something like that, you know. But I'm not talking about that because we really don't want to talk about morality and Martha Stewart in the same breath. But <clears throat> uh, anyway, um, but when the church talks about hospitality, we mean a very deep, deep, deep theological hospitality. <clears throat> it was hospitality, the hospitality of God that allowed Adam and Eve into the Garden of Eden that said, come, this is your home. Everything I have is yours. It is a wonderful place. There is nothing to hide here. Come. That was the hospitality of God. It was hospitality that showed Mary and Joseph the stable and the hay trough for the animals where Mary laid her newborn child in Bethlehem during a forced Roman census where everyone had to return to their hometown, so Joseph took her there when she was about to give birth. And you're like, a, a hay food trough does not sound very hospitable to me. Like, what kind of hospitality from God is that? Well, you have to understand just a little bit about uh, what was going on at the time some 2,000 years ago. You have to understand that Bethlehem is higher than even Jerusalem, the capital. It's built on a hilltop, and it's a small little town. Even today, it's only about 25,000 people. You know, it's a podunk place. But so the thing's built on a hillside, so almost everybody's house is on an incline. There's no level place. You know, they didn't come in with a, a, a cat nine, you know, and level the thing, you know, and pour a foundation. You know, you did what you could. And we have to understand that probably most everybody's house in Bethlehem was really what, this is really going to get stretched here. It was really like a front-to-back split. 
okay, except without the dishwasher. And, um, and or like what we might call a walkout because you're on an incline, and here's what they would do. You would put your animals down in the lowest part and out to the side and to the back in a pen, and they could come in at night, and you would feed them there, and there's the food trough and all this sort of thing because you could take care because animals are an asset, you know, and everyone had it for their milk and stuff like that, you know, and they're bacon. Just kidding. They're all Jews. There's no bacon. Um, <laughs> and uh, so, you know, that's where the animals were. They were down in the very bottom, right? And then you would go up some steps or ladder or whatever you had to do, and you'd go up to a mid-level and perhaps even another level, depending on how big the house was. And that's where you lived. And all the way at the top, you would sleep because that's where the heat was, right? And your cooking thing was in the mid-area, and that's where the fire was and the fireplace. And so that was the main living quarters. Now, the second component you have to know, other than knowing that they lived in a front-to-back split, um, is that Mary, when she gave birth, according to Old Testament law, according to the Torah, she would be unclean because of the birthing process for 33 days. Anyone who helped her would be unclean until the next Sabbath. Okay? So, it was a very hospitable thing that they actually took this girl who was going to give birth and let her in the house right, and put her in a place where she's close and safe and protected, but yet far enough away to where she doesn't defile the entire house, okay? So I'm sorry to mess up your pretty little Fontini nativity set with the little guy on the flute and the banjo and whatever they got there, you know, the little, the little Italian stuff, because that's not what it really looked like at all. You may do an okay with a shed or, or a cave or something like that, but more likely they were down the bottom of a house with multi-layers, multi-levels, okay? And it was a hospitable thing to actually have her in the house where they could take care of her, right, and the baby. And that's more likely what was going on. We don't know for sure, but that's something close to it, okay? The ancient Jews then were meant for hospitality. It is a part of the DNA in the Bible to be hospitable. Not only just God, and not only just for Mary and Joseph and the baby Jesus, but throughout the entire, you know, 1,500 years of recorded history in the Bible. Jerusalem was a bright light on a city, on, on a hill, a bright city on a hill. The temple dome at the time was covered, literally covered with gold leaf. It was said you could see it from sometimes 25 miles away. Probably most likely even Bethlehem, because Bethlehem was up high. Now, today there's a mosque on the Temple Mount there, and it has a dome to it if you ever see pictures of Jerusalem on the evening news or whatever. But in that day, there was a dome, and it was gold, and it shined if you were hitting the light right and you were standing in the right spot. It was blinding. All of this picture of Jerusalem, of the Jews, of the salvation of the world, being a light unto the world was what every Jew walked around with. And they had these words from the prophet Isaiah 600 years before Jesus to remind them of it and cast the vision for it. And this is what it said. This is what Isaiah said. Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, that is Jerusalem. Let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth instruction and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and shall arbitrate for many peoples and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks and nations shall not lift up sword against nation and neither shall they learn war anymore. O house of Jacob, come, let us walk 
in the light of the Lord. This was memorized by every Jew. Every Jew at the time of Jesus' birth carried this identity within them, that they were to be a light into the world. And all you had to do was cast your gaze towards Jerusalem, and you knew exactly what it was supposed to be with the bright, shining gold dome. Imagine hospitality in the Middle East these days. This vision is still not fully realized. When every week in the evening news, we read something about Syria or some other war going on. And it is Christians who will bring hope to this world. Wrapped up in this hospitality that Christians are supposed to exhibit is this component of not judging. Don't judge someone. And by judging, all we do when we judge is we split. We turn somebody into black and white, rich or poor, import or domestic, you know, chiefs or broncos. That's what we do. It's a splitting. Judgment is to split and divide. That person's too slow, they're too old, they're too young, they're too goofy, they're too strange, their hair's too high, their hair's too long. They don't have a hair. You know, this is what it means to judge. And it destroys hospitality every time we split. And I don't know if you can grasp this, but just dream with me for a moment. Because when I'm trying to not to be judgmental, what really happens is, is I actually judge and then I correct myself. I shouldn't think that about that person who's slow in the line at Walmart. Right? I correct myself. Instead, imagine, imagine a hospitality, a grace that would say, I don't even have a thought about that person being too slow. It never entered my mind. All I have is a happiness for everyone. Not in a stupid way, but in a way that says, I hold nothing up to you. We do it best when we look at babies. And they smile, and you smile. Babies smile some 600 times a day. Men over 60 years old, two to three times a day. <laughs> Statistics. What if we looked at everyone as if they were a child of God, as if they were Christ himself, and we didn't split people into divisions? That's a morality. That is a light that can shine. And we will be the most attractive people and be a light unto the world as sitting on a hill. And the voice of Christ will be going out. And people will say, I don't know everything about their church and religion and stuff, but they're good folk. I want to be like them. Well, would you stand with everyone and we'll be dismissed, you know. Um, tonight is the second week of Advent. Advent, the word Advent means something's coming. Like if you got up before the sun came up today, if there was actually a sun today, you would be waiting in Advent for the sun to come up. And we're waiting for Jesus to come. And this is the second week and it is on peace. And so you light the first candle at the beginning tonight. And then you wait till the end when you do your prayers and you light the second candle. Yeah. And the next week you light the third candle. So uh, you get the drift on the deal. So it ought to be a glorious time. Yes. Let's lean into it and make Christmas special. The waiting is the good part. Yeah?
May the Lord bless you and keep you. May he cause his face to shine upon you. May he really bless you this Christmas season. May we be moral examples, not for the sake of earning something from God, but so that we can change the world in the name of Jesus Christ. Yes, and be the church. Go in peace, everyone.